0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book, and we talk with the author about that book, and about some of the deeper issues in the study of sports. This week's guest is Dennis Denninger, who teaches in the Newhouse School of Communications and the Falk Center for Sport Management at Syracuse University. Prior to teaching, Dennis had a decades-long career in radio and television, including 25 years as a producer with ESPN. In his time at ESPN, Dennis produced a range of programs and events, including SportsCenter and Scholastic Sports America, the major international tennis tournaments, the World Cup, and the National Spelling Bee. And he won three Emmy Awards for his work with the network. Dennis offers a bit of his expertise in his book, Sports on Television, The How and Why Behind What You See, published in 2012 by Rutledge. The book is intended as a textbook for students in media production and sports management, but by no means is this a dry and difficult brick that you have to push your way through as if cramming for an exam. As someone who has been watching sports on television his entire life, I enjoyed reading Dennis's history of televised sport in the U.S., his observations of sports television's wide ranging cultural impact, and his insider's perspective on how the broadcast of a game or a tournament is put together. I will say, for those who enjoy sitting on the couch with a bowl of snacks and a game on the tube, you have no idea how much work and how much innovation has gone into producing those three hours of television. I learned a lot from Dennis's book and I recommend it to any sports fan even if you're not enrolling in a class. As it is a textbook, something that Dennis's book includes are questions and exercises at the close of each chapter. And I'll acknowledge here that I'm going to steal a few of these the next time I teach sports history. But for our interview, I asked Dennis a question that he puts to his readers in the first chapter. What is your first memory of watching sports on television?
1: I grew up out in western New York State and uh, I grew up in an area where we were too far away from Rochester and too far away from Buffalo to pick up over-the-air television. So what I watched was Community Antenna Television, predecessor of cable television in Hornell, New York. And Hornell Cable provided, uh, it was about, they, they provided the Rochester stations, the network affiliates and PBS, the Buffalo stations, and channels 5, 9, and 11 for New York City, which were the home of the Mets and Rangers and Yankees and Knicks. So my first memories of watching sports on television are very rich in that I got to watch live all of the sports played in New York City uh, by the New York teams. And I had been born in Brooklyn before we moved out to uh, western New York. And my mother would talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers of her youth, and it just made a great connection for me. And I grew up a New York sports fan out in the the middle of uh, rural western New York. And back then... We're talking in Europe in the pre-ESPN days, when sports was pretty much available only on the weekend on the major broadcast networks. So it felt very special for me to be able to, on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night, watch a Knicks game or a Rangers game, something like that, uh, because it was on cable and it was live.
0: And so then what led you into working in, in sports television?
1: I grew up loving sports. I was the... Newspaper carrier, I delivered the newspaper in my little town, and I would always read the newspaper. So I was interested in news, interested in sports. I uh, started working as a senior in high school at the little radio station in Ordell, New York. It was an AM radio station, and it was owned by a local New York State assemblyman. What he did was he would hire a a few college, uh, a few high school seniors every year, pay the minimum wage, and you got to be the newsman in the morning if your voice was sounded good enough or if you paid attention to the news enough or you got to be a, a disc jockey for a few hours a day. Uh, it was one of the ways in a small town he was able to keep his station running by having some young up-and-comers. So I got hired as the morning newsman on this radio station when I was 17 years old. So I would do the morning news and then go to ice They talk about a way to... Get a teenager excited about a career in broadcasting. You get to start being on the commercial radio before you even graduate high school. Well, I was hooked, and of course, I would report on the news and the weather and the sports. You do it all on the radio. And I went to Syracuse University, where I now teach. And I went to the Newhouse School, which uh, even then had a very strong reputation, and now has an excellent reputation. It's one of the best communication schools in the country, and that's what I focused on. I worked for the newspaper in Syracuse. I got a job based upon my experience in uh, my hometown. I got a job on the CBS radio station in Syracuse, and I did the afternoon news uh, while I was a junior and senior in, um, in college. So that, that work experience translated into a full-time job on the radio, and uh, luckily for me, Bob Costas, who also attended Syracuse University. Got a job in St. Louis, Missouri. Hmm. His first move from Syracuse to St. Louis. And when he left town, I got his job. Oh, funny. So that uh, was my first break in television. I uh, was the number three sports guy at uh, Channel 3 in Syracuse. And I was the number three weather guy. I did radio news one night a week. He was a weekend reporter. It was very much a utility of job. But uh, that's what my my first opportunity to do sports on television was, thanks to Bob Johnson getting a better job at leaving Syracuse.
0: Huh? That's funny. Huh. You still have a good a good announcer's voice,
1: Dennis. Well, that's you know. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. Um, I I talk to classes on a, pretty much on a daily basis, and um, I I feel like I've accomplished something if they don't fall asleep. So <laughs> if I can keep them interested. And if I can keep them awake. I don't want to shout at them, but uh, it, it's been one of my little assets in keeping kids awake.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Dennis, let's turn to your book. Um, the The first chev- several chapters of the book offer an overview of the history of televised sports here in here in the U.S. and probably best to start at the beginning. So, so when did television uh, sports begin in the states?
1: Scheduled television began in the United States in 1939. So it's a phenomenon that's been around for less than 80 years, when you think about it. And when you consider how television has changed American society, it's a very modern phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it not, has not been with us that long. But 1939 was the year of the New York State a New York World's Fair. The New York World's Fair in 1939, uh, RCA introduced television in their pavilion, They had a little television camera, and you could see yourself on television. They'd been working at it for years, and they introduced it there, and there were about 400 television sets that could actually receive a signal in the New York City area in 1939. A couple weeks after the opening of the fair, which President Franklin Delano Roosevelt opened, and General David Sarnoff, who was the president of of RCA, uh, envisioned a, a new dawning for American communications when he introduced television there. A couple of weeks later, they took that uh, camera and brought it up to Columbia University, up to Baker Field at Columbia, and this experimental broadcast station owned by RCA, which was called W2XBS, XBS for experimental broadcast station, they televised. A baseball game. First sporting event televised in the United States was the second game of a doubleheader between Columbia and Princeton, and there was one camera on about a 10-foot scaffold along the third base line, and it was transmitted to any home that had a television. Only about or 500 of them, within 20 miles of the Empire State Building, where the transmitting signal was, uh, transmitting tower was, and it was going to televisions that were, the screens were fairly larger than playing cards. So the complaints at the New York Times the next day were that you couldn't see the ball, you couldn't see the outfield, um, and that there was serious question as to whether or not this was going to be a success at all.
0: So what then drew the owners of, of networks in the early years to, to put sports on television?
1: In the early years, there was virtually no white payment being made, to any of the sports. Mm -hmm. Uh, Television was brand new. Um, I refer to the period from 1939 until 1949 as the decade of experimentation in my book in that there was a lot of experimentation as to which sports would make it on television, which sports would get an audience, uh, which sports would be easy to produce. Um, And in the early days, boxing and those sports that were in a very confined space that you could cover with one or two cameras easily where there was lighting uh, and a crowd there. And if the arena was somewhere in the New York City area, then it would be successful. So uh, it, it, I think it's very interesting if you go back and take a look at what the primetime schedules were from the 1940s, how much sports dominated primetime television um, 1948, for example, were 27 and a half hours of sports in prime time on the four networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and the Dumont Network at the time. And they were all from, there was boxing from Jamaica, Queens. There was wrestling from Patterson Square Garden. There was uh, the beginning of the Gillette Cavalcade of sports, which was mostly boxing and mostly from New York City. Um, and those were the things that were uh, easy to produce, um, not very expensive. You didn't have to go far to get the product. And it, it started to draw an audience. And boxing at the time was a sport unlike today, where you've got four or five different champions for a weight class that nobody can identify who the champions are. Back then, Joe Lewis was in the middle of a 13-year string of being the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, and he was a national celebrity and uh, a hero who had served in World War II. Uh, and there was a great interest in the people of boxing, people who knew who the champions were. And uh, it got quite a following, even if Joe Lewis wasn't the featured fighter.
0: So then, what were the what were the challenges? You talked about uh, that the um, uh, programmers chose events that could be easily covered with with say one or two cameras. What were the main challenges of of sports broadcasting back then in the fifties and into the early sixties?
1: Well, if you moving from the period of the nineteen forties when they were just kind of experimenting with, all right, let's try hockey on TV and let's try. Um, wrestling on TV, and let's try to do what tennis looks like on TV, um, then you quickly, as a programmer, you quickly found what would draw an audience. Um, And as the 1950s arrived, uh, it's very interesting, in 1950, only 9%, a little under 9% of American homes had television. Less than 1 in 10. Uh, A decade later, in 1960, 87% of American homes had televisions. During the decade, just the 10 years, 35 billion televisions were sold in this country. If you talk about going from a completely unconnected community, national community, to a connected community, with people seeing the same things, learning the same things at the same time, sharing experiences that they could Call each other, they could talk about the next day at the office or uh, when they gathered. Um, and sports was one of those things that got people excited when dramatic events happened. Um, the, the dramatic events like Don um, Mars' perfect game in the 1956 World Series. Uh, if you were one of those folks who did not own a television, and you went to work the next day with a bunch of baseball fans, and they said, Can you believe what we saw yesterday? And you had, did not have a television. Well, I guarantee you, your first impulse would be to get out of the local hardware store and buy yourself a television. <laughs> the very next thing, so you wouldn't be the person who was missing out. The same thing with the greatest game ever played, which is referred to as the, the NFL Championship game of 1958, the only NFL Championship or Super Bowl that has gone to overtime. And that was one of those games that it was tied at the end of regulation and Johnny Unitas marched the Baltimore Colts 81 yards for a championship winning drive but to clinch the championship over the New York Giants at Yankee Stadium. Now, those were the things that drove audiences. Um, the challenges were getting your signal to the entire country. Um, this is before the era of satellite delivery and Television signals were transferred by microwave from one region to the next. There were hundreds and hundreds of relay stations that had to be built around the United States, 30 miles or less apart, so that the signal in New York, the NBC network, say in New York, would go via microwave, bouncing around the country to cover different regions. Um, And it wasn't until. Ah, uh, the early 1950s. That actually the later in the 1950s, when the entire country could see the same thing at the same time, that um, recordings weren't being shuttled out to the West Coast. Um, and another huge challenge, and this is most people can't imagine—you cannot imagine watching sports without an instant replay—but there was no such thing as videotape until 1956. When the Apex Corporation introduced their quadruplex videotape, which is a two-inch-wide videotape that you could record any event on, before that, if you were going to make a copy, a recording of a program, you physically had to put a film camera up and have it record, have it film the output of what was on television. That's called a kinescope. So... Any programs before 1956 that exist for viewing today are actually films, they were filmed filmed, a television picture. So after 1956, you could actually record a sporting event. You could then record and play back highlights from a previous week. You could say, well, the New York Giants are facing the Eagles this week, and let us show you what they did against the Redskins last week. Um... The, the challenge of telling stories without the use of videotape uh, without the um, use of graphics devices that we have today, uh, those were the, the, golden, the that was the golden era of those great commentators who could paint a picture who could tell you a story, and who could add the right excitement to something because you could not build the excitement by showing a replay again it just didn 't exist
0: so Dennis, I want to ask about uh, wide world of sports as yeah. a an important program in American sports television history. And, and I gather from uh, from reading reading your section about that, that uh, you were a great fan of Wide World of Sports, and I must say that I was too. So why was Wide World of Sports so so important?
1: ABC Wide World of Sports started in 1961. It was the, uh, uh, another one of the great innovations from knowledge. Um, who was the leader of ABC Sports and then ABC News for a very long time at the end of the 20th century. Um, And what he was trying to do was introduce people to sports they hadn't seen before and to make money for ABC, he was looking to find sports that he wouldn't have to pay much of any rights fees for. So he was looking for finer sports, interesting different sports that he could put together in one reported show or feature one live show uh, and have recorded the elements around it of other sports. Uh, ABC Wide World of Sports aired every Saturday afternoon, started as a summer replacement show. And they hired a young guy away from CBS uh by the name of Jim McKay. He shortened his name from Jim McManus, Jim McKay, and he was the first host of and the host for thirty five years of ABC Wide World of Sports. Um, And what it did was it, before ESPN, it was what introduced people to sports that they had not seen before and may have heard of. It's the first place that Americans saw the Indianapolis 500, the first place that people saw the Daytona 500, was on ABC, Fargo Sports, the 24 Hours of Fama, World Downhill D racing um, Acapulco, Cliff Diving. Uh, just a wide range of sports that had never been on television before. And what it did was it it broadened the audience. It broadened people's expectations from the early years when all you could see was boxing and wrestling and maybe baseball and football to there are a lot of other sports out there. And figure skating, which has come to be, which became a a huge draw for the Olympics, Uh, they first featured on... ABC Wide World of Sports as one of those drawing cards, and Rudolph also used that uh, the exposure of uh, figure skating on Wide World of Sports to help promote the Olympic coverage. That he uh, after after 1960, he watched uh, the Winter Olympic Games were hosted by Walter Franke 15-minute wrap-up shows um, from uh, Squaw Valley. Um, California, and so he saw those, that this is something that we have to get for ABC. Um, he and uh, his cohort from ABC programming, Chet Simmons, who wanted to become the first president of ESPN, they went to Innsbruck, Austria, and negotiated the rights to uh, bring the Olympics five um, to the United States. In 1964, the Winter Olympics first and ABC became the network for the Olympics for um, 24 years. Uh, 1988 uh, Olympics in Calgary was, I believe, the, the last of the ABC games, and NBC started televising games in um, the 1990s, and they've been the Olympic network ever since. Uh, but ABC's wide roller sports was the predecessor of the ESPN, and it, it you could say that it wetted the appetite of the American public were interesting in different sports, the Calgary Stampede and cow racing and, and um, demolition derbies and a variety of things that people were not reading about in their local newspapers or seeing on local television uh, that existed in the world. And it was the draw of athletic competition, which uh, Rude Arlench knew would draw fans, and, and it did. And it only went off the air after ESPN had become so established that if you were watching ESPN, you could watch 50 or 60 different sports over the course of a year. And if you're getting exposure of them on a daily basis, then there was less possible reason to watch them as recorded magazine-type programming on one day each weekend.
0: So, Dennis, you devote a, uh, a chapter to ESPN, and, and this is really a remarkable story of how the network was founded and, and its development. And I want to ask you about one event that you describe as being particularly significant in ESPN's rise. And this is an event I remember watching. And, and this was the 1987 America's Cup races in Australia. And, and I was surprised as I, as I read that, that this was an important event. So can you talk about why that was significant in terms of the, the rise of ESPN?
1: 1987 itself was an extremely significant year in, in the history of ESPN. And uh, one of the reasons is something that nobody would have seen on television, nobody would have heard reported, But in 1987 is when ESPN surpassed 50% of American homes as their penetration. So in 1987, more than half the homes in the United States could then receive ESPN, which changed the entire playing field, and that ESPN could then sell to more national sponsors. Um, The prestige of the network grew. 1987 is the first year that ESPN aired. Uh, their first NFL game, uh, and they aired the America's Cup. The America's Cup that year was um, held off of Perth, Australia, in the Indian Ocean. Well, in 1987, ESPN committed resources and technology to bring you live coverage of the America's Cup boat racing, the yacht racing in the Indian Ocean, live from on the deck of a boat, and it was certainly you know when you're when you're over there in Australia, there was a, there's a difference of about thirteen hours when you're Perth uh, to New York, so it's the exact opposite side of the globe. Um, and it was aired live, so it was on it. The race was at one in the afternoon in Perth at one in the morning New York time, so one or two in the morning New York time. So it was. Not seen by a whole lot of people, but those people who did see it, it was remarkable. It was I, a I, game changer.
0: I loved it. I was up, like you said, I was up into the early morning, and I remember my dad and I would just sit around the TV watching yacht racing, and, and we would say to each other, I can't believe we're sitting up at 1 in the morning watching yacht racing from Australia.
1: Right, and that it was possible even to transmit from, those, from the decks of those boats uh, with uh, fixed point-of-view cameras uh, because you couldn't add the, you know, additional people to the boat that would add weight, et cetera. So they were all automated, fixed point-of-view cameras on board these boats, um, and then there were manned cameras on boats that were accompanying you know, the, the following fleet, et cetera, that, that covers the races. Um, It was absolutely remarkable that in the middle of the night, you could watch something live from around the world. And what it did was it increased the expectations of all sports fans that nothing ever again would be out of reach. Nothing ever again would be considered impossible to televise. So as a result, I mean, in in my career, I did live television from Moscow, live television from Harares, Zimbabwe. you could watch uh, auto racing from South Africa, you could watch like the, the 12 Years of Tennis from Australia, that you could watch anything from anywhere live, and when it was possible, people then became, they, then they expected it. They expected that if it was important, you would cover it, regardless of where it happened and when it happened.
0: So, Dennis, in your book you talk about – you have some asides in which you talk about uh, your work with ESPN and particular episodes in Zimbabwe and in Russia and in Australia. And typically your anecdotes are more of uh, uh, mishaps or when things went wrong and and how you had to think on your feet to to fix things. But I want to ask you what – in looking back in your career, your 25 years with ESPN, is there an event that you produced – that stands out where you think, here's where I really did a, a great job?
1: Well, I de- would we never want to shine a spotlight on myself and say I did a great job. Um, but there were certain telecasts where you felt like that you had broken new ground yeah, yeah, or that because you brought a, a particular team of people together at a certain time, that things just clicked and that the sum of the parts was greater than each of the individual parts could ever be on their own, um, and I think back to um, putting up uh, what we did Wimbledon for the first time uh, in 2003. It was just remarkable. When I joined ESPN in 1982, uh, Wimbledon was a fixture on NBC, and I never in my wildest dreams thought that ESPN would little up-and-coming cable network would be televised at Wimbledon, nor did I ever even imagine that I would be the the executive in charge of of the production, Um, and it was remarkable. I mean, just the first time doing a site survey over there and and walking into the Royal Box at Wimbledon and just standing where uh, monarchs from the past had watched tennis was very, very exciting, and we had about 125 people all working on the shows over there. ESPN2 was a, a fixture by then. So we had shows on ESPN2, we had shows on espn We were doing about seven ten hours live each day from Wimbledon. And that was also the year in which we debuted the ShotSpot technology, which is the automatic line calling, which mm-hmm. has now become, um, it's, it's automatic. If you go to a tennis tournament, you expect to see those um, the automatic line calling. Uh, there's no more question. There's no more John McEnroe screaming. You can't be serious, because you can replay uh, to a very, very uh, fine degree of precision exactly where that ball went. And uh, that's when we debuted that at Wimbledon. It uh, it added credibility to our network and it added credibility to the system. and that this is something that. Um, tennis players could believe, tennis officials would believe, um, and uh, I think it it's really changed the sport. It certainly changed the way people watch the sport. And an interesting anecdote there is that the All England Club was interested in seeing this technology because it had first been used by a British firm on cricket telecasts. Hmm. And in cricket, it would project the flight of the ball had it not been stopped by the batsman. Would the ball have gone through and hit the stump? Because you could, by using its trajectory, you could tell whether, it would have, whether that ball was on the mark or not. And you had a lot of cricket fans among the All England club. So I wasn't talking to people who had never even heard of this kind of technology when we were trying to convince them to, hey, you should allow us to place our little cameras in the position that we need to and let us, let us install this computer system to use in our telecasts. Um, they, they, they did uh, have an open ear to us, and, but they did want to make sure they wanted to guarantee the precision. So I invested quite a bit of ESPN's money in personnel and the equipment to set this up, Without the guarantee that the All England Club would let us use it, um, i started to believe we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of that, um, but what they wanted us to do the weekend preceding play was we had to set up a demonstration for them on one of their courts where a member of the All England Club would take a tennis ball and stand above a line and drop the ball either right on the line, or right next to the line, and then say, all right, ESPN, play it back. Let me see where your system says that ball landed. Um, And the system is far more accurate than the human eye. So each ball whether they dropped it and physically saw that it touched part of the line or was off the line or was on the line, our system came through, and it was accurate 100% of the time. And they said, all right. So you can go ahead and use it. So I was relieved by my, uh, my program finance folks that he has been relieved because otherwise I would have invested all this money in, putting, in selling this equipment for something that we could not have put on the air. Um, so that was very exciting, and we also um, won the Emmy Award that year for um, Innovative Sports Television and Technical Innovation. So that was also – that was probably rewarding. Uh, but that, that was, a, it was a great event, and we had – so many people working, so many hours. Uh, there were great stories to be told. Uh, that was the the first year that first year that Roger Federer won Wimbledon, his first major championship. Uh, there were just absolutely great stories, and we were there to tell them in a, and show them in a way that hadn't been shown before.
0: So Dennis, in in your chapter on ESPN, you you conclude by talking about the the cultural uh, influence that ESPN has had here in the states, and uh, as you say, ESPN has changed everything. Now you're an academic, so I'll ask you: Do you have any any critiques that you would make of ESPN?
1: Well, ESPN is a huge force in television, and it is not just one network, it's six networks. I would always joke that after we uh, debuted ESPN2 in 1992 that uh, we had come to the conclusion that 24 hours a day of sports was not enough, we needed 48 hours of sports a day, Um, and now you multiply it 6 times 24, so you've got 144 hours of sports a day being generated by one one network and uh, ESPN has been a tremendous force in exposing sports that have not been seen before in uh, adding women's sports to the national discussion uh, airing every game of the, the women's championship in, uh, in basketball um, adding so many more sports that were never seen on a national stage and um, with that dominance comes, you want to make sure that you want to avoid arrogance. Um, and that ESPN, those those people will criticize ESPN is that, well, they overvalue what they're doing or they're undervaluing sports that they don't televise. If you went measured the number of minutes that were devoted to NHL hockey highlights. Before, when ESPN had the NHL contract and was televised the NHL before their first work stoppage, when they lost the entire season and the Stanley Cup, uh, and compare that to when that the NHL is no longer an ESPN partner, but it's pretty easy to see that there's less attention paid to the to the NHL now than, than there was back when it was an ESPN partner. That's not to say that the NHL is less important now or more important than, um, but when you have partnerships in sport, like ESPN has partnerships with the NFL and they with the NBA and uh, Major League Baseball and others, uh, the partners treat each other like partners. So there's a vested interest in the success of those sports. And there will be some people who will criticize ESPN for uh, playing up to promote those partnerships because they're interested in uh, increasing their profits.
0: You mentioned that ESPN, as well as other uh, sports broadcasting networks, uh, they now act as partners with uh, governing bodies and sports leagues and so forth. And something that you do discuss in the book is that uh, because the sports networks, now work to or exist to convey the games and the teams and the stars, uh, one thing that's lacking is investigating sports. And uh, And you mentioned, for instance, the scandals at Ohio State and Penn State. They weren't broken by the Big Ten network. Uh, and we could add this year's scandal with uh, the Notre Dame player Monty Teo that uh, this was broken by Deadspin, this this online news site rather than by one of the, the sports networks. So, um, you know, thinking of your past as someone who was both an announcer but also uh, a newsman, it, uh, do you think that this is an unfortunate development in, in the broadcasting of sports?
1: What I refer to is I, I call it the disintermediation of television sports in that there are now so many networks that are owned by the organization mm-hmm. that they're covering. Uh, the NFL Network is obviously owned by the NFL. MLB Network is owned by Major League Baseball. And, um, the Big Ten Network is now actually it's owned uh, more than 50% by Fox. It, it started out as a partnership between the Big Ten and Fox, and Fox now has controlling interest. Um, but its main purpose is to promote the Big Ten, and the main purpose of the NFL Network is to promote NFL products. Um, not to say that they aren't going to report news uh, on at, that affects their sports, that affects their conferences, but they do have a vested interest in the success of. It's very different from the days in which journalists, fully independent journalists, were covering sports, and they had no. Um, there was no monetary interest in what they said uh, possibly affecting their paycheck now. Uh, baseball teams for decades have employed the commentators to announce their games on the radio. Um, and as a result, you're not going to get a whole lot of investigative reporting from radio uh, doing the games. That's not their purpose. Um, but it's been a little bit more of a recent uh, phenomenon in that all of the regional sports networks, a good number of the regional sports networks that televise baseball games, um, and other sports, are owned by those teams. So they their interest is in telling you what's positive, promoting what's coming up next, what's dramatic, the great stories, they're great players. Um, but you're not going to hear a whole lot of people, say, for example, on the Yes Network, complaining that Brian Cashman made a bad trade. <laughs> because the same person paying Brian Cashman is, is paying those reporters and paying those commentators and paying those producers. They're all on the same team. So uh, you don't want to be called into the office and said, well, you're complaining about your couple employees here, and uh, we'll decide whether our employees are doing a good job or not. You won't. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a blanket that's thrown on the, the possibility of investigation or possibility of criticism where it may or may not be be due. So, and I don't, the the American sports viewer is not really discerning between where the game comes from. If you follow a team, if you follow players, you want to see the games. You're not going to say, well, I won't watch it on the local guest network because it's owned by the team. Or I won't watch it because it's on NFL Network, because the NFL Network owns the league, and they own whatever. I mean, the league goes to that network. If you want to watch the game, you're going to watch the game, but you may get less of a possible less of a product than if there were complete, um, uh, complete independence of the media, as opposed to an, an ownership position, or even in the case. I mean, ESPN is independently owned, it's owned by the Walt Disney Company, um, but when you've got a contract, say with the the uh, NFL that ESPN pays over a billion dollars a year's rights to the NFL, you're going to protect that investment. And you you want to see your partners do well.
0: So, Dennis, we're almost out of time, and uh, we need to talk about the Super Bowl, the, the biggest uh, television event in American sports. And, and I want to talk about the most recent Super Bowl, which uh, brought up some interesting issues about sports television because the lights went out in the, in the middle of the game, and uh, there's been a, uh, a lot of press about CBS's uh, poor handling of the 34 minutes when the lights were out. And so I want to ask you, I'd be interested to know, on, on the Monday after the Super Bowl, when you were back teaching your students, uh, what, what did you and your students talk about? What was the take that you gave them about uh, CBS's handling of that event?
1: Well, you have to hand it to Steve Tasker and Solomon Wilcox, who were the two sideline reporters, who did a pretty solid job of reporting for a couple of segments there when that was completely not planned. Uh, and uh, they, they came pretty much up to the task of, hey, let's jump on here and we'll tell you what's going on. Um, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a very precious lesson for anyone in television sports that you always want to be independent of the power source of the building in which you're televising, whether it's an indoor stadium, outdoor stadium. Um, We, for the most important event, and actually most events, independent generators are fairly inexpensive to have. They run on gasoline can fire them up. And uh, CBS obviously had generators for their trucks, and they were able to continue powering their um, their signal power and their transmission power in the production unit. Um, unfortunately, they did not have alternate power to their booth, and the announcement where Jim and Phil Sims were housed lost all power. Uh, they couldn't see monitors. power to their microphones went out. Uh, power to their communication went out. Um, well, by a couple of years ago, when... ESPN was televising the NFL game from San Francisco, and a transformer blew and knocked like the entire stadium out. Rico was able to continue talking about the game and accommodating them because there was an alternate power source—battery uh, power, alternate power—that was provided for the booth. Um, I'm sure that the CBS is discussing as to why that was the case or whether they had it and it wasn't functioning, etc cetera. Um, but you is when news happens, the worst thing they can have happen is you being unable to report on the news. And that's the situation that the T V has found themselves in when their the booth lost power. Um, another another thing is it was very early into the second half and their halftime the halftime studio with James Brown and their analysts had um, those guys that just scattered and getting them all back together they did not expect that they would have to do anything again until the end of the game. Uh, that took a little bit of time to find them. I think it's going to make all of us consider how we keep people ready for uh, what might happen. One of the things I teach is that the most important thing about, that's the most, one of the exciting things about live television is you don't know what's going to happen. There are so many unknowns. You never know when an unknown is going to step out as a star. You never know when you're going to have technical problems. So, You always have to have a plan B and a plan C ready just in case. And I think the um, example that the the ordeal that CBS went through is going to have a lot more uh, folks in the industry focusing on what their plan B and what their plan C if things go down. If you've got news happening, you want to be able to continue to report on the news and not just have your microphones go dead.
0: So Dennis, my last question for you, you mentioned this earlier in the interview, the uh going how ESPN added networks and, and multiplied times six the number of hours of uh of sports broadcasting on television. And you have other figures in the in the book which talk about the tens of thousands of hours of sports broadcasting uh each year in the United States. And uh um, I'll close by asking you, is there too much sports on TV?
1: There will be too much sports on TV when the ratings say people don't care anymore, when people aren't watching anymore. Uh, television, the sports media in the United States are very tuned to the market and what the market will bear. The increased interest in sport has, has uh, grown geometrically. The uh, number of people who pay attention, there are so many different ways that you can be a fan. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, people didn't have fantasy leagues. didn't have that kind of an interest in uh, a football game or football team. Uh, you didn't follow your favorite players on Twitter. You didn't like them on Facebook. Um, there's so many more ways to be a fan these days that it's an integrated experience of which television is a key, is a key player, um, in fact, when I was growing up, it was exciting to see uh, a couple of the Yankee games or if you were watching uh, broadcast television, you got a game of the week every Saturday. Now you can watch virtually every home-and-away game for your favorite team on your regional sports network. And people are fans of that. Uh, Nesson in the Boston televised at the Red Sox wins tonight in Boston against the other broadcast networks. Over 100 nights a year, they are the highest-rated telecast of anything being watched in Boston on those nights. So I think the market will will dictate what we see and what we don't see. And if there are too many sports then and you can't make any money at it, then we'll step back from that. But one of the things that ESPN did do was they they proved that you did not have to spend millions of dollars to produce a show, they, they became the volume car dealer. And if you spent a little less money producing each show, you could produce a lot more shows. And they proved to the broadcast networks that you could produce them pretty well. And the, the golden hero of spending lots and lots of money and limousines delivering your talents and delivering your producers, et cetera, those one out the window because, hey, if you could spend less money, if you could produce more shows, if you could provide more content, to your viewers and your sports fans, they would eat it up. And uh, America has continued to uh, show up at the table again whenever sports is on the menu.
0: Well, Dennis, as a historian and as someone who's grown up watching uh, televised sports, uh, I really enjoyed this book. There were, there were many, many, many places where uh, I read read passages out to to my wife and kids and said, I, I never knew this. Listen to this. So, so it was really a great feast for me to, uh, to read the book and, and some of the details you had about the history of sports television. So thank you for coming on New Books and Sports.
1: I really enjoyed it. Great chatting with you, Bruce. And uh, I encourage folks to pick it up. It, it doesn't read like a textbook. It's a, it, there are quite a few stories in there, and I think you'll enjoy it.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Dennis Denninger about his book, Sports on Television. The How and Why Behind What You See, published by Rutledge in 2012. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like language, politics, African studies, and military history. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.